the coronavirus, COVID-19. What we're witnessing is progressive politicians, bureaucrats, policymakers, becoming drunk with power as they use a virus to control the masses and change the way we live. In America, they've been able to get away with trampling the right of assembly and squelching free speech. Even the right to provide for one's own physical needs has been stripped, all in the name of a relatively new term that is now a part of society's fabric, social distancing, a term that is ripe with liberal hypocrisy and stained with progressive power. It's all coming up in this special edition of Hidden Headlines, episode 59. Welcome everyone to Hidden Headlines. Brian Sussman here. More on me at briansussman.com. You know, it's amazing. I was actually prepared to do a Hidden Headlines podcast today, record one, on Nancy Pelosi, Gavin Newsom, and uh, those types of people who are just waiting, salivating to get into the White House. But we'll do that in the next episode. This social distancing thing, really hit me, especially today. I was thinking about this. For the first time in the history of this republic, the healthy are being quarantined. That's never happened before. And as a result, the job market is not going to recover for a long time. Businesses are shuttering. Furloughs and layoffs are the norm. Once temporary layoffs have now become permanent layoffs. In the Silicon Valley, there were many startups that sounded rather exciting, most of them having to do with technology, funded by private equity. But those startups are now gone because the private equity guys and gals are saying, i got to hang on to my money here. Car sales, non-existent. Air travel, pathetic. Construction starts have dried up. Oh, and if the liberal politicians can just stretch this out until November... Maybe Joe could make it across the finish line. I'll talk more about that in episode 60. But in the meantime, let's talk about social distancing. The effects of short-term social distancing have not been studied well at all. But there are several researchers, most of them scrambling to deal with disruptions to their own lives because of the coronavirus. Anyway, recently they've taken time to share their thoughts with one magazine that I was reading online, Science Insider. They were talking about the potential social and psychological impacts of social distancing and how to mitigate them. And here's what they said. They were asked, what's known about the effects of social interaction on mental and physical health? They said over long periods of time, social isolation can increase the risk of a variety of health problems. So in other words, social isolation is not always, well, can oftentimes be really bad for your health. They were talking about heart disease and depression and dementia and even death. In this particular article, they talked about a 2015 meta-analysis of the scientific literature by a person named Julianne Holt-Lundstad. Julianne Holt-Lundstad is a research psychologist at Brigham Young University. And these colleagues determined that chronic social isolation 
increases the risk of mortality by 29%. In other words, there are a lot of people who have died or will die because of social distancing. Now, that may be because social contacts can buffer the negative effects of stress. I mean, you know, when we're all together talking with people, we can de-stress. Oftentimes, certain people, when left to themselves, think about things and get wound up and get agitated and get depressed. And laboratory studies by Holt Lundstad and others have found that having a friend present in your life can reduce a person's cardiovascular response to, for example, a stressful task. There's even a correlation between perceived social connectedness and stress responses. So according to Holt Lundstedt, and I'll read to you what she says, she says, just knowing that you have someone you can count on if needed is enough to dampen some of those negative responses, even if that person is not physically present. So you always know in the back of your head, well, if things get tough, I'll, I'll go over to Bob's house. If things get tough, I'll go over to her house, whatever. And what effects, if any, I have to ask this question, might be caused by social distancing in response to the coronavirus? I mean, it is kind of an open question, but here's what they said in this particular article that I'm reading. I have a couple competing hypotheses. This is what Holt Lundstedt says. On the one hand, I'm concerned that this will not only exacerbate things, for those who are already isolated and lonely, but it also might be a triggering point for others to now get into habits of connecting even less with other people. So then the next question, are there certain people or populations most likely to be affected or more likely to be affected as the case may be? And what they say in this article is people of all ages are susceptible to the ill effects of social isolation and loneliness. Again, going back to Holt Lundstad from Brigham Young University, she says a recent report from the National Academy of Sciences, of which she was a co-author, highlights some reasons older people may be more susceptible to the negative impact of social distancing, including the loss of family or friends or chronic illness or sensory impairments like hearing loss, which make it even harder to interact. So in other words, we're telling older people in particular to self-isolate. You're the population that's most at risk. But when they're self-isolated, well, I'm thinking my own in-laws. They're 95 years old. They're stir-crazy right now. They're very socially active people, I believe, in large part. That's why they've lived to the age of 95. So what do we do to help them in this particular time? Well, we get them in the car and we drive them around. We drive them by friends' houses. And yes, the friend will actually come out of the house and we'll maintain our distance as we talk to each other from a car to the sidewalk or driveway or whatever. For my father-in-law's 95th birthday, which was recently, we literally had people come to our porch in shifts so that my father-in-law could watch them sing a song, do a skit, read a poem, or just simply say hi, all while we're keeping that distance. But listen, my wife and I had to work hard to put this together. What about people that don't have that kind of network? They're going stir-crazy or worse. They could even die from this kind of isolation.
You know, it's interesting. I'm reading here in this article that I keep referring to from a French sociologist, last name Durkheim, who wrote a hundred years ago about something called collective effervescence. Collective effervescence described the shared emotional excitement people experience during religious ceremonies, going to church, singing songs together, praying together. But the same concept that he was describing over a hundred years ago can apply to things like sporting events, people getting together, rallying for the team, having fun, shouting at the top of their lungs, perhaps even enjoying a beer together at the same time. It's interesting because a sociologist at Harvard University named Mario Small said this kind of activity dramatically magnifies the sensation that you're experiencing while also reinforcing the idea that you're something larger than yourself. But we don't have this any longer. And they're even talking about when we do get back to baseball and football and the other games, we may have to maintain social distancing. Stick with me on this because I'm going somewhere. Now here's where social distancing is harmful to one's health. Think of the thousands of people who have died of heart attacks during this season of social distancing. They were experiencing various symptoms, perhaps of a heart attack, but blew it off because they heard that the hospitals were too overwhelmed with coronavirus victims. So they didn't go to the hospital. They ended up dying of a heart attack. They waited too long and they died. That should not have been the case. And it's not just heart attacks, but a variety of other ailments that could have been corrected by a visit to the emergency room. And by the way, doctors and medical staffs have seen furloughs. And they've seen layoffs during this virus scare. I have a friend whose cancer surgery had been placed on hold. It was a cancer surgery he needed as soon as possible. It was put on hold because of the coronavirus. He has a deadly cancer, and the surgery was placed on hold. He literally had to petition the Surgeon General to get his surgery taken off the hold list. Okay, here's another one. I have a friend who was not allowed to be with his elderly father who was dying of the coronavirus. And the father was not in good shape. The father was elderly and he was on a respirator. They had to make a ventilator, I should say. They had to make the decision whether to take him off the ventilator or not. My friend is a well-known cardiologist. And he had to make the very difficult decision to take his dad off the ventilator. You know what's really interesting and sad and quite frankly sickening? He, even as a cardiologist, was not allowed to be in the room with his father when his father was taken off the ventilator and died shortly thereafter. He was not allowed in the room. I have another friend who was taken by ambulance to a hospital recently, two weeks ago, for a very serious medical issue. And her family was not allowed to visit her in the hospital. Folks, this is flat out insanity. And guess what? It's likely to be with us for some time.
I'm reading here from a group of Harvard disease experts. They say some form of intermittent social distancing may need to be in place until the year 2022. That's because once the initial wave of COVID-19 infections is passed, they say further outbreaks could occur. And they say if lockdown restrictions are lifted at the same time, instead of in coordinated phases perhaps, a surge in new cases could overwhelm healthcare systems. Now again, at least the hospitals in my region are not overwhelmed by COVID. I realize in some big cities it may be different, but for most cities in America, guess what? The hospitals are empty. The emergency rooms are not busy. Even if the intentions behind social distancing were all good, let's think through some of this stuff for just a moment. I asked the question, why is the liquor store deemed essential, but the clothing store is not? Why is the weed store, as in marijuana, why is the weed store deemed essential, but the home garden store is not? By the way, I love gardening, as those of you who know me know very well. I love gardening. It's a wonderfully healthy hobby, and it's a great way to spend time alone. Talk about social distancing. Now, you can go to the Home Depot, and their garden store is open, but the little mom-and-pop garden store, the specialty store that I like to go to, is closed. Tell me why that is the case. How about this? Why is it that my wife, on her recent trip to Texas, by plane, had to maintain the six-foot distance rule throughout the airport, including on the jetway tunnel leading to her plane, but immediately upon entering the plane, she was greeted by every seat taken. Every seat. So six-foot distance, six-foot distance, six-foot distance, get on the plane, and you're crammed in just like usual. Oh, sure, everyone was wearing a mask. You had to. Including the idiot whose mask fell off onto the floor while exiting the bathroom. But no worries. She quickly picked it up and strapped it back onto her face. Or the other fool who took off his mask to blow his nose with a tissue, put the mask back on, and then proceeded to touch everything around him with the hand that had just touched all the snot from the tissue. How do the so-called journalists in the White House press pool, these snakes who ask gotcha questions to Donald Trump and Mike Pence, in this particular case, they were criticizing Donald Trump and criticizing Mike Pence for not wearing masks in public while they themselves were asking the questions not wearing a mask. Why is it in San Francisco and in other parts of California, and it may be going on where you live as well, the homeless are literally being housed in hotels. It's a combination of public money and private money, probably from Soros. They're living in hotels. They're getting free food. They're getting free booze. They're getting free pot. And they're getting methadone. Folks, at some point, we have to realize this is absolutely crazy. The right to protest is guaranteed by our First Amendment. 
public protest is guaranteed by our First Amendment. So is the right to assemble peaceably. So is the right to petition the government. But officials do have the power to impose time and manner restrictions on these important rights. So, of course, I mean, think about this. No one has the right to play their loudspeakers and wake up neighbors in the middle of the night for their protest. Or break into legislative assemblies to present their petitions. Or to assemble on private property without any permission from the owner or to block the entrance of a public building. I get all that. But against this background, the question arises whether the citizens who are protesting current restrictions on movement have the constitutional right to assemble in violation of these new social distancing rules, which are supposedly in place to slow down the spread of the coronavirus. You see, this is the stuff that progressive lawyers love to play devil's advocate with. The question is, are social distancing rules legally enforceable? Harvard law professor Alan Dershowitz said it like this. This is an April 23rd article over at The Hill. Quote, as some Supreme Court justices said, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. It must be flexible enough to ensure that during real emergencies, the government must have the authority, as Thomas Jefferson noted, of self-preservation and of saving our country when in danger. However, Dershowitz goes on to say, the Constitution must also serve as a barrier against governments exploiting crises to expand their powers beyond the real needs of the movement. End of quote. The problem is, we're witnessing a battle wherein the progressive liberals are using a crisis as an opportunity to gain control over the masses and it's working remarkably well. As I mentioned in episode 58 of Hidden Headlines, this is a post I share from a resident of Lagos, Nigeria. Now again, Lagos, Nigeria is one of the largest and most impoverished cities on the planet. It's 21 million people. And this writer doesn't deny that there's a coronavirus and that the coronavirus is deadly, but what this writer is saying that social distancing in his city would kill people. Quote, Lagos is a city of 21 million people, perhaps the largest urban economy in the African continent. Some of you have been there before. They have these informal sectors in the city. And these informal sectors are where there's street trading and open air markets It's a fundamental fabric of Lagos and its economy. You've got hawkers, and you've got roadside manicurists, and you've got hairstylists, and you've got waste pickers, and you've got food sellers, beer brewers, card dealers, servants, witches, (laughs) warlocks, um, hairstylists, homeless people who sweep bridges and curbs for a penny or two. They keep the city functioning. They're all dependent on the city's 24-7 public activity for their livelihoods. The cost of living in Lagos is very high, which means home ownership is a rarity. Most people rent, and they live in close quarters. It's a, a, an apartment would j- be jammed with many, many people. 
traffic is always jammed with many, many people, whether vehicular or pedestrian. Looks like a heaving mass if you were to travel above in a drone or look down from a, a tall building. It's just a mass of people. In the same way, a front yard or veranda of the average rental property is packed with people and possessions and makeshift shops and, depending on the time of the day, naked children being enthusiastically scrubbed in large basins. Quote, in my city, grimy currency notes go hand-to-hand throughout the course of everyday life. People sweat on one another in transit. Communal toilets, kitchens, and bathrooms are typical in low-income neighborhoods and can be shared by as many as 40 people in one building. In the poorest neighborhoods, sanitation is non-existent. In Lagos, about 6 million of the 21 million people live on incomes earned on a daily basis. So what this writer is saying is that if the powers that be decided to quarantine and self-distance people of Lagos, like they're doing here in America and other developed countries, forget the COVID virus, the social distancing and quarantine would kill people. I'm now reading a report from the Imperial College of London. They did an influential analysis of the coronavirus and prevention measures. They were the ones early on who said, if we do nothing, there'll be a half million people who die in Great Britain. If we do nothing, there'll be over two million people who die in America. So the report found that disease suppression policies like social distancing, like quarantines, like school and university closures, listen to this, will need to be maintained until a vaccine is developed, which could take as long as 18 months. 18 months. They say to avoid a rebound in transmission, these policies will need to be maintained until large stocks of vaccine are available to immunize the population, which could be 18 months or more. So we need probably, they say, 18 months to get the vaccination. Then you're going to have to have a lot of time for the vaccination to be uh, developed and stocks made available. So we're talking 18 months or more. We're talking a couple years here. So at what cost, if this is to go on for 18 months or more, at what cost? I'm reading an article from John Hopkins and their University of Medicine. Uh, The John Hopkins University of Medicine latest journal writes, social distancing will save lives, but its economic costs are staggering. The economic fallout of social distancing is brutal for the poorest, most vulnerable, and marginalized members of our society. And by the way, when we talk about the most the, the most poor amongst us, we're not talking about people living on the street. We're talking about that family who's getting by on the salary or the income that gets them through the month. And now they've been laid off or they've been furloughed. So we're, we're not talking about the homeless. We're talking about hard-working people just trying to get by. And Johns Hopkins identifies this. 
even looking at the issue purely in terms of lives lost, again, reading from the article, injuries sustained, and lifelong psychological damage, there are trade-offs that we feel have not been sufficiently acknowledged. Unemployment will lead to increases in suicide, substance abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, and food insecurity. Substance abuse itself, especially the opioid crisis, has already significantly reduced life expectancy in the United States, and that has been during a time of relative prosperity. Under the current circumstances, it is entirely possible we will see such impact again. Thousands of people, they say, this is again Johns Hopkins, thousands of people will die from these causes, and many more will be severely injured and traumatized for life. While these issues can be universal, they fall hardest on the poorest, most vulnerable members of our population who we know have been the first to lose their jobs and suffer the most from these terrible problems. I'm just guessing it's only going to be a matter of time before you won't be able to find that article on the Johns Hopkins website, but we shared it with you right here on Hidden Headlines. Brian Sussman, thanks for joining me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share more on me at briansussman.com. Hidden Headlines, faith, family, freedom. Thanks for listening, my friends, and may you allow God to bless you.